Welcome to the Labor History Podcast, produced by Ian Hudson. I'm Avery Ware. Will technology destroy the labor movement? And there's no question that the labor movement is in trouble. From a high of 35% of the workforce in unions in 1954, we were down to 10.6% in 2018. With the strongest unions, the historic mass industrial unions like the United Auto Workers and United Steel Workers of America hit hardest, this has created rust belt conditions. With lower membership, labor's political influence is less. With smaller numbers of us part of powerful collectives where we learn to think in terms of common interests and potentially break down racist and sexist divisions among ourselves, there's more space in the society for individualistic, dog-eat-dog, and hateful and prejudiced thinking, helping explain the rise of Trump and other right-wing nationalists here and around the world where some similar conditions in unions prevail. And with the historically strongest union sectors decimated, private sector unionism is down to 7%, the 30% unionized public sector is the natural next target that the Supreme Court's Janus ruling has put a gun side on. Many, not only white nationalists like Trump, but including also liberal politicians and even union leaders like James P. Hoffa, Jr. of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and Leo Girard of the Steelworkers, blame globalization and outsourcing for the loss of union jobs. But that's highly misleading. In the era of globalization, starting in the 80s, more jobs have you moved to the southern United States than out of the United States. It's also true that in globalization, jobs have moved to the United States, like the auto transplants, companies like Toyota and Volkswagen, which have significant, employee, uh, significant numbers of employees in the U.S. now, though again concentrated in the U.S. non-union South. Most importantly, more jobs have been lost to machines than to foreign workers. For example, the steel industry in the 1980s was cut in half in terms of employment, and not coincidentally, during that same period of time, new technology meant that it took only half as long for a single steel worker to produce a ton of steel. So if the popular fear of globalization provides a false and convenient scapegoat, foreigners, for bosses and the bipartisan politicians they fund, the popular fear of technology among working people is based firmly on reality. So what do robots and the coming wave of technological change mean for our labor movement? First, let's look at the economics and then the history of technological change. As we've discussed in other sessions, on average, capitalists can invest and make a profit on that investment because of the power imbalance between labor and capital, which means that on average we get paid less than the value of what we make or than the value of the service we provide. 
After all, if you can't be reasonably sure that an investment will lead to a profit, what's the point of investing at all? And if there's no investment, this system stops. Making a profit is not just an incentive for capitalists. Competition forces them to make a profit. And that's because investment works like this. It's kind of like a magic trick. You've got some money. You use it to buy some capital, some machines, some raw materials, some buildings, some labor. You set the labor to work in all of that, and the product they produce at the other end, for some reason, you can sell for more than what you paid for the investment. We know the reason. We've already been into it. On average, we get paid less than the value of what we produce. But the fact that each comp competing company in this economy tends to end up with that profit means that competition puts them in a position where they're pressured to reinvest that profit, that surplus, back into production for new machinery or other ways to make the production more efficient so they can drive the cost down and put their competitors out of business. So technological change is built into capitalism, but so is labor, and so is increasing potential power for the laboring class over time. In fact, in creating a class that lives by selling its labor, capitalism unintentionally creates its own gravediggers. As previously stated, it relies on labor as the only systematically exploitable production factor. And in order to create a class that can labor and produce this surplus, historically, it squeezes peasants and farmers who then have to leave the farms, pulling us together in cities. And within those cities, putting us together inside workplaces where we form natural collectives and we can organize with each other. Capitalism also tends to increase our productivity. This is what we talked about earlier, the pressure to reinvest in higher productivity. Um, it's because of competition, but the, what it does for us in the workplace is that it gives us more power because the more productive an hour of our labor is, the more damaging it is when we withhold that labor. And not only that, but because our greater productivity depends on the investment in more equipment around us, that investment also goes to waste when we withhold our labor, causing an even bigger hit to the system when that happens. Lastly, and ironically, Capitalism drives to de-skill skilled labor, but this backfires in a way and in also intends to increase our power. Because the way that labor is de-skilled is that management tries to break it down and subdivide work into smaller tasks than that known by the skilled worker as a whole. And this subdivision of work increases our numbers, our concentration, and our cooperation with each other, and again, our capacity to organize. This is historically why 
workers' potential power has grown so that when that potential becomes organized or reorganized, it has grown in reality. And we've seen this over the history of the labor movement. We've talked about it in other sessions. In the 1830s, when the labor movement was starting, we didn't even have a national union federation. That didn't happen until after the Civil War. In the first two decades of the 20th century, for the first time, with the Seattle general strike, with the West Virginia miners' strike, we began to see worker strikes take on the dimensions where they became more powerful than local governments and had the capacity to substitute for them. Greater heights were reached in the 30s in this country and around the world. The largest general strike in history to that point occurred in France in 1968, in Poland, China, the United States in 2006 with the immigrant workers nationwide strike, the day without an immigrant. All these show examples of the growing potential power. It's only a potential. It has to be organized or it doesn't mean anything. But even at a low ebb of organization, and 10.6% today, the number of workers and unions in the United States, is a low ebb compared to our high of 35%. Even at that low ebb, organized labor remains a sleeping giant. We still organize the docks, the trucks, the buses, the trains, the airlines, the grocery stores, UPS, power generation, much of manufacturing, most of construction, television, schools, hospitals, government, and more. That 10 0.6% is more than enough. If we all struck together in a general strike, the society would grind entirely to a halt. And the idea of us continuing to work, putting the work under workers' control would be on the agenda. Now let's look at some of the history of how technological change has interacted with the labor movement. At the beginning of the 20th century, 50% of workers were employed in manufacturing, in factories. And that was the result of late 19th century changes, the reorganization sometimes called Taylorism, which meant that we went from small shops with highly skilled small numbers of workers to large factories in which there were still a few skilled workers but many more semi-skilled workers with their labor de-skilled. And that destroyed craft unions, the butchers' union, the iron, steel, and tin workers in the first decade of the 20th century had big strikes that were defeated. The union's ranks were decimated because they were the old-style craft unions based on skilled labor, and they could no longer shut down an entire factory with their strike. The labor movement was devastated by this reorganization. But it ultimately rebuilt. And when it did, it was stronger. It was the semi-skilled industrial workers that organized in the 1930s. That is, the total restructuring of industry at the turn of the century wounded the labor movement while also giving more potential power to workers. And when we finally organized that power, we were far stronger 
than the old version of ourselves. There's a permanent delusion out there, a fear that we all have as working people. Our jobs are all going to disappear because of machines. Now that was said at the turn of the century during the period of restructuring just discussed. It was also said during the next major restructuring. The free market, deregulation, privatization, and budget cut restructuring from the 1970s to today. Manufacturing employment today, while it produces more manufacturing output than ever, and in fact the U.S. remains the leader in the value of its manufacturing output, only employs 12% of the working population. Think about that. 1900 workers are thinking machines are going to replace our jobs. 50% of people worked in factories today, it's 12%. It sounds like it came true. So how can it possibly be then that we have historically low unemployment today at 3.7%? And it's because transportation, logistics, education, health care, government service, and recreation are all increasingly needed to service the minds and bodies of those production workers and to make sure they are as highly productive as they need to be in today's production system. And many more jobs, of course, are created for scientific and technical workers who create the necessary machinery to support that high level of productivity. The production of physical goods remains the core of the economy, and workers in that sector have a unique economic disruptive power. For example, in 1995, about 2,000 General Motors brake workers went on strike. Only 2,000 workers in a highly interdependent supply chain situation had an incredible impact. They actually slowed the growth of the entire U.S. economy, its gross national product, by a quarter of a percent. 2,000 workers were able to do that because of all of the other workers that they forced not to work simply by themselves going on strike. The logistics industry, which runs on the techniques learned from Japanese industry in the 1980s called just-in-time production, in which everything is timed very tightly and there's very little supply uh, built up and held in reserve, means that companies like UPS and Amazon and FedEx, UPS is organized, Amazon and FedEx are not, most of the logistics industry are not, that the workers there have an enormous power to put pressure on their own companies and on thousands of other companies and on the economy as a whole because of how strategic and highly tuned their work is. In this situation of heavy capital investment, uh, it's also highly vulnerable. It's also true that with global supply chains, international solidarity between workers across borders is not only more possible but more necessary. But it's not just the case that workers in the productive core have more power. Interestingly, the services sector, 
where now most of us, myself included, work, have more power as well because the system as a whole is more integrated. If you've got workers in a highly tuned uh, production system where they have to be highly skilled and productive at doing the tasks assigned to them, they've got to be able to get back to work right away when they're sick. You've got to have a steady, predictable supply of workers turning 18 who've learned how to do what they need to do through the education system to prepare them to work. So in recent years, we've seen that hospital workers and teachers are particularly powerful when they strike because they're some of the sectors that are actually striking. But some of the trends in the techno reorganization of production and work in recent decades are pretty surprising. In the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, it was often remarked that workplaces were shrinking. Capitalists were switching to smaller size work units. And this was rightly believed to be weakening the ability of large numbers of workers to organize together and have the power as large numbers. But that trend is reversing. The size of workplaces has been growing in the new century. In the mid 20th century, corporations tended to merge into big conglomerate corporations in which one corporate umbrella would have many different companies in unrelated lines of business under their umbrella. In the 70s and 80s, the early globalization era, these companies were largely spun off as companies tried to get back to their core business and not have a conglomerate structure. Now there's a new wave of mergers, and this one is March is marked by vertical consolidation. And what that means is that corporate structures now contain multiple companies who are affected by the strike of one of their components. It's no longer the case, as it was in the era of conglomerate corporations, that a lot of corporations can accept a strike at one company because they make up for it in continued profits in one of their unrelated subsidiaries. That's less and less true. There's been a lot of concern about the impact of the gig economy. People taking jobs where they are, in theory, their own contractor, like the workers at Uber or Lyft. But the gig economy has actually shrunk in recent years. And at the same time, we actually are now seeing organizing, as just last month, Uber and Lyft workers went on their first strike. Less surprising than these trends are some of the things that are very familiar. Pay is going down. Work is being sped up. Benefits are harder and harder to get. Scheduling is more and more quote-unquote flexible, meaning we have to be available at a moment's notice and we can't have much of a life. The monitoring, electronic monitoring of our work, it grows and grows. And all that means that 19th century pre-union misery is coming back in a big way. The generation growing into this new misery has already produced Occupy Wall Street, the Fight for 15, Black Lives Matter, and it's a generation among whom socialism is now a more popular word than capitalism. So what about 
robots. Well, like previous rounds of capitalist restructuring, the introduction of robots that's pending today will disrupt workers' lives. It will ruin people and communities. It will break up unions, speed up work, and increase profits. Unless and until the labor force itself implements technological change for our own reasons, in our own interest democratically. The promise to us of technology, of reduced hours and less stressful and less physically demanding work, will not be realized. None of that is in the interests of capitalists under competitive market compulsion, and they are the ones organizing the implementation of technology. When I was young, the threat of global outsourcing was supposed to take away workers' power to resist. And as we've seen, that turned out to a large degree to be hype. Will it be the same with robots? There is, in fact, a pattern of the same type of hype. Writer Lily Irani has talked about the corporate narrative of the miracle, the introduction of automation and robots and machine learning into work, producing miracles of production. And the implication is that we can't understand why it's happening, and it's making labor irrelevant. We don't need workers to do this thing that somehow robots are now miraculously doing. Irani says that this conceals and in intentionally hides displaced human labor because, as she says, we always need people to calibrate and train what we automate. Automation has hidden human faces. She uses the term cultural data workers to describe some of these hidden categories of workers. For example, working at Google, who are the reason that Google is able to refine its search engine results. The algorithms rely on human raters, R-A-T-E-R-S, raters, who rate the results of search engines and then uh, feed the uh, categorized results back into the algorithms. Um, there's a company called Amazon Mechanical Turk, among others, that supply this type of labor. As Irani says, the second machine age, which we're supposedly in, doesn't like to admit it needs help. Another example of this is that I was very surprised to find out that Siri is a real person. I, I think many others, assumed that this was a computer-generated voice. But no, it's the voice of a woman named Susan Bennett. The miracle narrative plays on our disempowered position and fears flowing from that to make us doubt the power and necessity of human labor. The real, awesome power and potential of robots is used to hide the things that only labor can actually do. As far as the tech industry itself, it's often assumed to be unorganizable, ununionizable. But tech workers are now organizing. We have an organization called the Tech Workers Coalition. We've seen Microsoft and other companies anti-drone and anti-ice petitions put out by their workers. 
we've seen the strike of 20% of Google employees against sexual harassment. This isn't just new organizing, it's social justice worker organizing. Tech workers today tend to be well paid, but they may be at the beginning of the familiar capitalist labor cycle of de-skilling. And if so, over time, they will find their pay cut, their work sped up, thus their need to fight increased, but also their interconnectedness and thus their ability to organize increased. As working people, our existence as subordinates in the capitalist hierarchy of employer-employee, the person who can hire and fire us, and the person who has to follow orders. That existence puts our creative faculties on the shelf. As workers, we lose our self-esteem in that relationship, and we are susceptible to the employer's strategic threats that maybe we're not really needed. Those threats are not new. And every time that capitalism has reorganized production, it has certainly looked like we weren't needed and we could not maintain our previous organizations, which can be washed away in this reorganization from above. But we've also seen in the past how reorganization, when it happens, tends to happen on a higher plane. Capitalism is still creating its own gravediggers. And the undiminished power of today's strikes proves the idea that labor is losing its power to technology wrong.